This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be with you here today. Coming up later in today's episode, I will be answering a reader question, um, one that was actually not technically submitted for me to answer on the podcast. It was submitted by one of my Patreon supporters, um, but I think it's an interesting question, and so I'm going to be addressing it. I already answered her email, but I'm going to be addressing it here for everyone, and, and that reader's name is Julie Lowe. So thanks, Julie, for submitting the question that I'm going to answer on today's episode. And of course, remember, if you have any questions or comments that you would like me to address or to answer on a future episode of the podcast, head on over to GwenCooper.com. That's my website. There is a page there dedicated to my podcast where you can submit comments that I will read and respond to generally pretty quickly. Every so often, life gets away from me a little bit, and it'll be a couple of weeks before I get a chance to, to check comments on the podcast page, but it's usually pretty fast. And you can also um, contact me through the contact form on my website, and that just gets an email submitted right to me. I'm sorry, you guys. I don't know what is wrong with my brain today. I think my brain is a little bit broken, maybe. I feel like I'm fumbling for words, and I'm not quite sure why. Actually, I think I do know why, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um But anyway, yes. And of course, last but not least, you are always welcome to just email me directly at my email address. It's super simple to remember. It's Gwen, G-W-E-N at GwenCooper.com. And that's G-W-E-N-C-O-O-P-E-R dot com. So love to hear from you guys. Hoping that I get a chance to. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, (laughs) I, as you guys know, right, it's uh, this... My my life as as a writer and and now a podcaster is just not nearly as glamorous as I might have imagined it would be 20, 25 years ago when I was a young when I was a mere slip of a girl. Uh nothing nothing but dreams, having just finished college and gone out into the world and started, you know, adopting cats. And um I don't really know that I would have entirely understood what podcasting was back in that day, but I would have been like wow, you mean I write books and I have my own radio show and that sounds amazing. And, you know, of course, nothing is ever as glamorous as it seems. And those of you who are longtime listeners know that I record this podcast in my closet. And that is because it is literally the only room in my 150-year-old lovely house with its very, very high ceilings and very, very hard hardwood floors that is not just completely echoey. That does not sound like I'm recording in an echo chamber. So I'm sitting in my closet and, you know, it's a closet. Um, 
And like a lot of people's closets, probably too much stuff crammed into too small a space. So it's not like one of the, you know, it's not a California closet or, and I'm not one of those people where like my quote unquote closet is actually a whole room in my house. It's a closet. It's a walk-in closet, but you know, like a smallish walk-in closet. Like technically in the real estate listing, you would call it a walk-in closet, but you wouldn't walk into it and be like, oh my God, just imagine all the incredible glamorous clothing you could fit in here. It's just not like that. And so I, I'm sitting here and and I actually, I, I have a, a face mask on I'm doing today. It's a 12-hour facial mask, which is prescription. And um you know, this is not anything that we have ever really discussed on the show. I don't think this is something that I've shared much or, or at all with you guys, but I, I actually, I, so I have, I am plagued with skin problems. I have been my entire life. It's, it's just for whatever reason, I was blessed by God with very sensitive skin. If I have any problems, whether it's stress or, or, you know, um, life stuff getting to me or anything imbalanced with my health. It just always manifests itself in the form of a skin problem chronically. I, and, and this is not like including the, the one offs that I occasionally get, but chronically on any given day, I am living with, um, cystic acne, which is fun. Um, rosacea, melasma, eczema, psoriasis, hives, uh, warts, uh, <laughs> And I, I think that's about it. No herpes. I've never had herpes. Uh, so, you know, or or a melanoma. So thank God for small favors. Um, I have also, you know, then I've had a couple of weird one-offs. Like I once had something called pityriasis rosea, which my dermatologist <laughs> cheerfully informed me. I was the only person he'd ever treated who had it who was not also HIV positive because it is it typically it's a very rare skin condition that generally only manifests in people with immune you know, with uh, compromised immune systems. And um, I do not have a compromised immune system per se, but that is just how susceptible I am to skin problems. Anyway, so I am, and and this has been a real, you know, this is, if, if you guys wonder, by the way, why you don't see a lot of pictures of me on social media or why, you know, my husband is always telling me that I need to do more Facebook and Instagram live broadcasts or that I should do a video podcast um, or at least at a minimum, he's always telling me, you know, you post so many pictures of the cats and not nearly enough for your of yourself. And part of that is because I, I honestly, I know my audience and um, for the most part, people on social media are more interested in seeing pictures of the cats. But the other reason, candidly, is I don't really like people to see me. Um, I just always, I, I'm always very self-conscious about the way that I look. And I can honestly say that at various times in my life, this is, it has been something that has been sort of inhibiting where I have not engaged with, with friends, um, you know, where I've spent more time at home than maybe I wanted to because I did not want people to see me and or I, I literally did not want to show my face anywhere. And, you know, as I've gotten older, this is something that I've gotten over more to a certain extent. You know, as you come up on 50 and I'm going to be 50 in a month, you start realizing that you were always fighting about, right? It's, it's always been a law of diminishing returns. Like appearance-wise, you probably peaked somewhere around the age of 18. And, and then you started getting older. And, and so it was always 
whatever you loved about the way that you look, it was always loaned to you. You It was always on loan, as it were. It was always something you only had temporarily. And you start to care less about what the world in general thinks as you as more time goes by and you get a few more years under your belt. But the point being, I'm I'm sitting here today with this very heavy um, 12 hour mask on my face. And that's because I spent a lot of time in the sun this summer, which I do not regret at all, but it has just aggravated the heck out of my melasma, which is like dark spots on my skin and rosacea, which is red spots on my skin. And so this is hopefully going to undo some of that damage. Um, this has been a very personal confession, by the way. I'm not sure that I've ever really shared this with anybody. Although I did way at way, I mean, years ago, like, like way, way back, within about a year after Homer's Odyssey was first published, and I was trying to imagine or trying to think of what my next book would be. Um, I, I really wanted to write a book about this. I, I had an idea for a book. It was called Zits and All. Uh, so, wait, what was the exact title? It was Zits and All, A Memoir of Breakouts, Breakthroughs, and the Quest for Inner Beauty. Uh, because I will say that the one positive thing that has come out of all of my many, many skin afflictions that I've been living with for the last roughly 35 years is that I really did at a certain point come to the idea that I, I was going to have to work on being a a worthwhile human being because I was not going to make it on my looks. And so, and, or at least that, I mean, I was never going to make it on my looks and, and very, right, very few of us. I mean, you haven't exactly been cheated by life if you can't make it on your looks that nobody arguably should be in a position to make it on their looks. But the vast majority of us who have no skin problems at all are still not going to make it on our looks. And fair enough, only a small handful of supermodels in the world. But where, uh, you know, I was going to have to find things to feel good about myself. I, I really did realize, and, and as a teenager, I didn't actually have much, but I did have hives. I had hives pretty chronically. And so things were always swelling up and looking weird. And I realized as a teenager that I was going to have to to put a little bit of effort into becoming a person of substance because at least it would keep me from feeling too bad about looking funny if I had a you know skin problem of any kind. And so I definitely wanted to make that a part to tell kind of that story of that journey in a way. I think it's the story that precedes everything else. I, you know, I wonder sometimes the extent to which I, I care about the things I care about or fight for the things I fight about. And that includes um, everything that I do for animal welfare and, and that I encourage all of you to do. And it just the years I spent working in nonprofit and, and how much that would be the case if I had never, What's the word I'm looking for? If I had never, you know, if I had not suffered as much as I did in my private life from my various skin afflictions, I, I think uh, it, it both, like I said, it, it encouraged me to a sense that that I really was going to have to develop my inner resources because the outer appearance was not necessarily something I could count on. 
But also, you know, when you suffer, right, it, it gives you empathy for others who suffer. I think a lot of us who love animals as much as we do, we things have made us unhappy in our own lives. And so it, it's just an unbearable thought to think of animal suffering in the same way, especially because we tell ourselves at least we sort of understand what's happening to us or what's happening in the world, whereas animals will, will never know. They will never understand. I, God forbid if I walked out of this house and died in a car accident, Clayton would never understand why I didn't come, why I never came home to him again. This conversation has taken a very dark turn. But it's interesting because when my publisher, when I suggested this book to my publisher, they were wildly unenthusiastic, um, did not like the idea at all. And they suggested to me that instead of that, I should work on writing a novel from a cat's point of view. And, and that was the genesis of Love Saves the Day. And it was actually that idea that really was the first kernel of the idea from Love Saves the Day that, that if we were to leave the house one day, never come back, our, our pets would never understand. This is something I used to discuss a lot with my best friend, Andrea, who's also an animal lover. And it was just this one thought that, that killed us, you know, that if anything were to happen to us in our day to day lives, the, the animals we left behind would never understand why we had left them. And again, a very, a very sad thought, but it was, it was that thought that gave birth to Prudence, the, the feline narrator of Love Saves the Day, who goes through something similar, although does eventually find a, a forever family that she loves. It, I would not write a story about a cat that did not have a happy ending. Um, just, just as that my guarantee to you my listeners and readers. Anyway, but so the point being, I'm sitting here with this very, very heavy mask on my face, and, and I really think it's, it is it is distracting me and, and is kind of affecting my thought process. And I, I realize now that I sort of painted myself into a corner by waiting, by, co by making the day that I'm doing this, also the day that I'm recording the podcast. I, I really did not think one would affect the other, but... Um, you know, along the same lines of not being able to make it on my looks, I guess I also I cannot walk and chew gum at the same time. So um, if I can't make it on my looks and I can't make it on my brains, then I guess I just have to be <laughs> a nice person and hope that the world takes pity on me. And on that note, uh, people who support me and take pity on me and and help me get through this this day-to-day -day grind of this thing we call life – I am going to take this opportunity to give a shout out to my Patreon community. This is the last shout out of the month. Um, and again, if you want to learn more about Patreon, I'm not going to do the big buildup that I usually do, but you can head on over to Patreon, uh, my, my Patreon community and see what that's all about. It's a place where I share fun content and extras and freebies and things like that that are exclusive to Patreon. And we have a good time over there. And that's patreon.com slash Gwen Cooper. And Patreon is spelled P as in Peter, A, T as in Thomas, R as in Robert, E, O, N as in Nancy, dot com slash Gwen Cooper. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, and so big shout out uh, to, again, uh, the, the next round of Patreon supporters at the $5 a month level or higher. We have D. Cab, Melissa Ratchko, Hella Johnson, Allison Amsterdam, Ronald Coltnow, Don Cole, Ann Tatemeyer, Linda Chase, Nita Mercer, April Crawford, Grace Brown, Cindy Settle, Penny Nakatsu, 
Andrea Kenner, Stephanie Rison, Mary Wispy, David, I'm sorry, David Hepburn, Shelley Ritter, Annalee Evans, and one supporter who prefers to remain anonymous. So thank you. A big, big thank you to all of you. And with that, we are going to take a very short break of about 30 seconds or so. And when we come back, I will be answering this week's reader questions. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, and hang tight for more Curl Up With a Cattail. much for sticking around. Uh, you know, by the way, I, somebody asked me recently, and I'm going to, I think it was um, Carol in my Patreon community, but somebody did ask me recently uh, where the music that I play during our brief breaks comes from, uh, because she found it to be very enjoyable. This is actually a, a short piece of music that I purchased. Um, it was just written by a, a you know, somebody who writes commercial music, like a commercial composer. When I say commercial, I don't mean like literally for television commercials, but as opposed to, uh, you know, somebody like, like an artist, basically somebody who's just writing music. There there are people who write short pieces of music um, and and sell them specifically for use on podcasts or YouTube channels. Basically, there, there are a lot of issues with intellectual property. So you can't just find a piece of music someplace that you like and start using it you have to purchase the rights to do so, which can be very expensive. But there are places, um, and, and there's a site called Audio Jungle that I've worked with, which is one of them, where they actually have pieces of music for sale specifically to be used for podcasts. And uh, for sale, I mean, you can buy things from as inexpensively as, as $5, $15, and so that that is the story behind this piece of music that I have. I, I purchased it from a commercial composer um, for, I believe, $25. And, and now I use it on my podcast. And that is where it comes from. I do not remember the name of the composer from whom I purchased it, to be candid. But it, it was just, you know, one piece of several when I put in jazz basically. And I just liked it as soon as I heard it. And that is how it comes to be on this podcast. So Carol, there you go. That is the answer to your question. And uh, today I'm actually answering a question from reader Julie Lowe. And Julie actually asked me this question via email privately on my Patreon page, but I thought it was an interesting question and one that I I thought might be interesting to answer for the show. And so Julie wrote and asked, one question I have is, how did you know how to care for a blind cat? Did you research trial and error or did Homer tell you what he needed? And she puts tell in quotation marks. And, and of course, we understand um, that she does not mean to imply that Homer literally said one day, you know what you could do, Gwen, to make my life easier? And, and of course, point taken. Um, I, I find it an interesting question because, you know, th there are certain questions that sometimes make me <laughs> make me feel that um, I'm not as good a writer as I think I am. And, and I truly ask this from uh, Julie is, is a, a supporter and, and, and a reader. 
And and actually, we, we've had an email exchange, and she she seems like a really great person. Um, and I know that she asked this question with with so, like so affectionately, and and um, not to make me question my abilities as a writer. And the only reason I do is because one of the ideas that that I really wanted to put across in Homer's Odyssey was was to maybe demystify the care what it was like to care for a blind cat. And again, I started writing this in two thousand seven. There were no famous blind cats out there. There were the, the whole idea of in, of even internet famous cats was not really a thing in 2007 when I started working on Homer's Odyssey. Certainly when I adopted Homer, Google did not exist and and the internet was a place where you went to exchange emails for work or or maybe to flirt with boys via AOL Instant Messenger. Um not that I did that actually, because it always seems sort of weird. But I had friends who did. Anyway, so part of what I wanted to accomplish in writing the book was to kind of demystify what had to me when I first adopted Homer seemed like a very overwhelming idea. And and that was caring for a blind or special needs cat. Um, and, and I certainly intended to make it very clear that I was not a person with any kind of specialized knowledge when it came to blind cats or even to cats in general, I was I was kind of new to the whole living with cats thing. I'd only been living with cats for two years. I'd grown up with dogs and lived with them my whole life. But one of it, you know, and, and I was not necessarily 100% confident that I would be able to give a blind kitten a good life. I, I it was just kind of like like you fall in love and and all reason and logic sort of goes out the window. Like you just know that you have to be with this person or in my case this animal who you love. I, I fell in love instantly with Homer from the second I picked him up. I, I feel like we fell in love with each other and and at that point we just had to be together and the rest of it was going to work itself out. And so I, I I didn't know anything, really. I, I think the one thing that I brought to bear on the situation, and I think a lot of people listening to this will appreciate this, I have always been a person, so I'm one of those people, right, who's good, quote unquote, good with animals, or, or traditionally I have been good with animals. And to me, what that really means is is simply that I pay attention to animals, to what seems to be making them feel comfortable or uncomfortable if I sense that I'm doing something that is making an animal in my vicinity uncomfortable, then I stop doing that thing or stop acting in that way. If if an animal is uncomfortable with me approaching, then I don't approach. If the animal seems to want, seems to be uncomfortable with my holding myself aloof, then I will try to engage with the animal. It, it really sort of is, is as simple as that. And so it was in my nature. And this is something, by the way, I got straight from my dad. My dad, uh, may he rest in peace, who was an animal lover to the core of his being and and was so so wonderful with with the dogs who the, the the rescue dogs who we adopted over the years all of whom just came from terrible terrible situations and and came to us with a lot of of emotional baggage and my father was really great just intuitively great at setting animals at their ease and and making them feel comfortable and and I he you could tell he paid close attention. He would read a dog's face and and eyes and expression and body posture. And I I think some of that maybe I inherited from him, but I also 
you know, is is something that that I consciously tried to do when I realized it was something he was doing very well in the way that in a perfect world, we all kind of want to learn things from our parents. There, there's something we see our parents doing and, and we think, you know, that's that's something that they, my mom or my dad is doing super well and I want to do that same thing as well as they do. Anyway, so I, I did have some reservations. The one reservation I really had about adopting a blind cat was if if I can't read his eyes, will I be able to to read him? Will I be able to know what he's feeling or or ha- what his comfort level or 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 happiness or anxiety level is in any given situation. And this is actually something I discussed in the book. One of the first things I realized about Homer is that even though he no longer had his eyes, he still had the muscles around his eyes. And so you could still, if you were looking closely, as I certainly did over the years, and, and as any of us do with the animals who we live with, you could tell kind of the shape that his eyes would have been taking if he had had eyes. And so I could tell just by the muscles in his face, if he was feeling happy and confident or anxious or irritated, much the same way as we do with with our quote unquote normal sighted cats or dogs who we live with. And and again, there's also so much in, in body posture and so the answer to that question really is that I, I didn't know anything. And it really was, a, it, it, I guess ultimately the answer to the question is, yes, I did let Homer tell me. I mean, some of it I tried to think through, right? You know, there are certain things that are common sense. I didn't really need anyone to tell me that I, it would be wise for me to make sure that Homer knew where his food and his litter box were. And once he learned those spots, to not move them around and and to not keep things lying around on the floor, which I somewhat shamefacedly admit was certainly my my want at the time. Something I, I customarily did. I I became tidier after I adopted home, or not perhaps as tidy as I could have been. It's really been a work a, a work in progress. I'm I'm actually very tidy now, but I definitely think it's been an incremental process <laughs> over the last twenty five years and. Uh, if it is indeed true that a tidy desk is the hobgoblin of small minds, then I have an enormous mind because nobody would, at looking at my very cluttered desk, would would accuse me of of being overly, well, tidy. I guess where that's concerned. But anyway, I. But as far as leaving things, shoes and and clothing and things on the floor, that was something that I stopped doing pretty quickly after I adopted Homer. And so a lot of a lot of things like that were very much common sense. And as for the rest of it, uh, it really was a matter of paying attention to Homer and letting myself be guided by him. It was a little difficult at first. I was very anxious. I was pretty confident that if I, that I would find a way to to mess it up or or scared that I would do something that would harm Homer or make him fearful. I, I did realize, and again, I wrote about this in the book fairly early on that. The one thing that was making Homer the most anxious was was my being anxious. And when I calmed down and relaxed, so did Homer, and he just became the the outgoing, confident, daring, adventurous little guy that he was always meant to be, whether he had vision or no. And so really it it really was about letting Homer lead the way. And I think that's something that that is part of of res- responsible pet guardianship. Uh, you know, some of you may know that a couple of years ago, I was attacked by my next door neighbor's 80-pound 
unneutered pit bull. And I'm still working through some of, of the, the physical and emotional damage from that attack. But the thing that was really upset, and look, when all is said and done, I've lived with pit bulls. I grew up with pit bulls, the greatest dog I ever lived with, my Casey girl. She was a pit bull and, and just the sweetest and best dog. And the one thing, the, the reason why the attack makes me angry is, you know, certainly nobody has to explain to me that there's no such thing as a 100% predictable animal, just like there's no such thing as a 100% predictable person. Um, but this particular dog, aside from being unneutered, you know, when you have an 80-pound unneutered pit bull or an 80-pound pit bull and, and you choose also not to neuter him, then you are certainly creating a possibility for a very territorial or aggressive animal. But the thing that was, that still upsets me about it is that the second I moved in, that the first time I saw this dog, I did not think he was a bad dog or a mean dog. I, I really didn't. But I could tell that he was a very, very defensive and guarded dog, that, that he was overly protective of his home and of his people. And I could tell that just by the look on his face and the set of his shoulders. And certainly when I would be in my backyard and he would be sitting right at our fence watching me very carefully, uh, no matter what, you know, because again, they live right next door with just a fence separating our two yards. Um and also my husband, you know, he, he would he would also watch my husband. But again, it wasn't even just like a dog kind of hanging out and seeing what the neighbors are doing. It was he saw himself. It was his job to guard the perimeter. And if anybody got too close, it was his job to make sure that they were pushed back. Um, the real tragedy to me, aside from the, the harm that came to, to me, but the thing, one of the things that makes me so sad about this attack is is the certain knowledge that I have that this dog just wanted to be a good dog, and that when he when he attacked me, he thought he was being a good dog, protecting his family, and so it's very upsetting to me that his family, that the people who who I know loved him, but it seems how it seems almost impossible to me to think that they couldn't see what I see, which is that this is a dog who needed some actual training, you know, some serious and intensive training so that he would understand the difference between a situation where he had to be on his guard and the other kind of situation, which is most of life, where all he had to do was be a dog, like just a family dog. It is not your job to be to spend 24-7 guarding this house and the people within it. And I think if, it, you know, he needed someone who who saw within him this need that he had for for order and and for a feeling of security and safety and i guess the big point that i'm making is that really everything begins and and ends with being the kind of person who pays attention to the animal that you're living with and to really assessing the needs of that animal independently of what your own perceptions or or desires might be. Um, if I had not paid attention to Homer, there's definitely a world in which I would have ultimately made him an anxious cat by overprotecting him. And I, I paid close attention to Homer and and saw that the one thing consistently that made him anxious was my anxiety. And so that was how I learned to be guided by him and and how he was able to flourish. 
And look, at the end of the day, I'm certainly not saying or even trying to imply that that being attentive is the same thing as being a mind reader. And again, I, I do want to say it's it, there's always that 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 X factor where an animal just like a person can surprise you. Um, and, and Homer surprised me in, in some positive ways and some negative ways over the years uh, that the cats who I live with today still surprise me. And, uh, and animals like people also change as time goes by. And like Clayton, for example, has suddenly and well, not suddenly, but this has really been over the last few months. And this is something we've discussed. Or I think I've discussed on this. Maybe it's just in the bonus podcast uh, that I do with Lawrence on Patreon, where I've discussed this. But Clayton has become very possessive to the point that it it really is genuinely upsetting for him when Lawrence and I are just hanging out, like sitting on the couch or having dinner or whatever it is, when we're just talking to each other and not paying attention to Clayton. You know, Clayton will be asleep across the room and, or or downstairs and Lawrence and I will be upstairs and he will be completely fine if you know when if Lawrence leaves the house without me and is gone for hours, Clayton just kind of finds his spot to curl up for the day, and he will curl up there, and it's all good. But then, if the second Lawrence comes home and the two of us start talking, Clayton is up, and he he gets right like physically right in the middle of us and starts meowing at me very loudly, and and just lets it be known that, in as far as he's concerned, I should be paying attention to him and not to Lawrence. And this is one of those things where I find myself wondering what what have I done what am I doing or what have I started doing that has made Clayton all of a sudden feel this insecure about getting attention or having to share attention my attention with Lawrence and and I wonder if this might go back to about a year and a half ago when I had what I this was in the early days of quarantine and I had what I believed at the time and still believe was covid. And so I was locked up in the bedroom with for 10 days and Lawrence did not come in and I did not go out and and I initially did not want the cats in here at all because we weren't sure about cats and COVID or how transmissible it might be from humans to animals. But Clayton was was so hysterical at, at being separated from me that it, it just was untenable. And so Clayton and I were locked up in the master bedroom of this house for 10 days with no other company at all. It was just the two of us. And, and I think we, we, and we, and we've always been very close, but I think we bonded in a way. I think Clayton came to feel that, that he, now he kind of owns me. <laughs> and, and so Lawrence is sharing me with Clayton and not vice versa as far as Clayton is concerned. And, and it's just upsetting for him when I pay attention to Lawrence and not to Clayton. Anyway, this is sort of getting off track, but but the point being, I, I did not know anything, but I also really wanted to convey the idea in Homer's Odyssey that there isn't necessarily much to know. There, there are certain common sense steps and precautions that you want to take um, unless you live in a very, very safe, quiet, mellow kind of area your blind cat should be an indoor-only cat. Again, you want to not leave a lot of clutter on the floor. You want to be pretty consistent about placement of food and litter and, and the furniture in your house. I, I don't think people tend to move their furniture around very often. Sometimes you have to for one reason or another. So these basic common sense things, 
But that beyond that, it it really is, is you know, a, a blind cat ultimately is just a cat. I, I don't even know how much there is really to know other than those basics that I've just outlined. It, again, cats, like people, they all have different personalities. Homer had a particularly confident and outgoing personality, I think. And certainly I've lived with other cats who were not that confident and outgoing and if they were blind would probably not have been the same kind of a friendly, eager to experience life. You know, it's hard to imagine a blind Scarlet being as embracing of life and new people and adventure as Homer was because a sighted Scarlet, <laughs> God, may she rest in peace, was none of those things. Um, Julie, actually, speaking of Scarlet, Julie also asked how Vashti and Scarlet got along. I've talked a lot about Homer and Scarlet's relationship. Um, and the answer to that question is that Scarlet initially uh, hated Vashti and didn't want Vashti around. This is when we first adopted Vashti. And I'm talking about like the first couple of weeks uh, Scarlet, she didn't like other, she didn't like people other than me, and she didn't really like other cats. Um, but after she got used to Vashti, you know, Scarlet was also, I mean, had a little bit of a bullying nature, and and like all bullies, right? She liked having someone smaller and more docile to push around. Scarlet didn't necessarily have it within her to go toe to toe with a full grown cat, um, but. You know, after the first couple of weeks, she she kind of liked bossing Vashti around and and smacking her in the head. And the two of them used to get into these little slap fights that that Vashti pretty much always let Scarlet win. And so the two of them did become buddies. They they liked to play together. Um, it, and and that was the case really until we adopted Homer. And they still liked to play together. But then when Homer would come over and try to get in on whatever game they were playing, whether it was their little slap fight game or batting a piece of paper, a little, you know, crumpled up ball of paper back and forth. Um, as soon as Homer came into play, they would both kind of be like, ah, we don't want to play with that guy. And the game would be over, which always made me feel sad for Homer. You know, it's like like being the kid in the schoolyard and you see two kids playing catch and you come over and you're like, hey, can I play catch with you? And they're like, oh, forget it. And they just put the ball on the ground and leave. And that that was sort of what it was like, although Vashti did do some playing with Homer. And again, this is something I discussed in the book. You know, Homer played a little bit rougher than they did. I don't know if that it was because he was a boy or that was his personality. Because he was blind, he tended to grab things a little bit more. Um, and by things, I mean both whatever toys they were playing with, but also you know, he would grab like like tails and and fur and and paws or or feet and legs. You know, in the case of people, and he he didn't like things necessarily disappearing. He liked to kind of know where everything was, and I don't think Vashti and Scarlet liked being grabbed that much, and and they they thought he played a little rough, and he really was just playing. But you know, they 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 had very different personalities. But Scarlet and Vashti. Did get along very well, and and again, this is something that I, I I talked about a little in the last podcast when I said that that Vashti really was kind of the glue. You know, Vashti was the one who was willing to play with Scarlet and with Homer. I mean, Homer would have played with anybody, but Scarlet was only willing to play with Vashti, and Vashti played with both of them. Uh, just like she really was the bridge between Lawrence and the other cats and between Lawrence and me on the subject of cats in the first place. She she really was this uh, – she was a very, a, a, a very special little little creature and and definitely we were a different family because of her. So that is the answer to that question and, and hopefully to the question of how much I knew 
And and again, I as always, you one like I said, one of the things I really wanted to achieve in writing Homer's Odyssey was to convince people that a blind cat should be considered just as adoptable as any other kind of cat. And it, it's I, I find it very heartening when I see what a presence blind cats have on the internet now. And this is why I was so upset about that situation in Sweden a couple of months ago. For those of you who've been listening that long and, and who know about Kelly, the blind kitten, um, a, a, a veterinary association affiliated with the, with the Swedish government wanted to euthanize a blind kitten who was being kept in a, sh- in a no-kill shelter about to be adopted out to a forever home on the grounds that it was cruel to allow a blind kitten to grow up because a blind kitten could not possibly be happy and would always be scared and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. A, a blind kitten basically could not have a good life and would be too much trouble for anyone, any person or family to take care of. And And it was like the last 12 years of my life had never happened. When I heard this, it was one of those things where I got as angry as I did and worked as hard as I did to to persuade as many of you as possible to sign a petition and write letters to the Swedish government and why we worked so hard on behalf of this. And I will admit candidly that it was because of of Kelly and wanting to save this blind kitten, but also because hearing something like this come from so official a source as a, a veterinary, you know, a Swedish veterinary association just made it feel like the last 12 years of my life had been canceled out. Like I had never written this book and I had never talked to people blind cats, about blind cats. And I'd never given a million interviews for televisions and newspapers that advocating for the adoption of special needs animals and how wonderful they are and rewarding it is to to live with them and, and how little, how much less they need than you think they will. It, it really was like someone had just come along with a giant eraser and just erased all of that. It, it hit me on a very personal level. Um, again, I feel like I'm getting very far from the actual question that was asked. But yes, the short answer is I took my cue. <laughs> After all this time, I have the nerve to say, and the short answer is, but truly, the short answer is I took my cues from Homer and just as I think most of us do very intuitively with our own cats, right? We we all know that that all of our pets, all of the animals who we live with have very different personalities from each other. And yet we manage to make it work almost all of the time. And that's because we pay attention and we let the animals themselves be our guides and tell us what they need. And truly, it is no different with a blind cat than it is with a sighted cat in that sense. And having given the longest possible answer to that that very relatively simple question, um, I, I'm going to call it a day and go check on the status of my 12-hour mask. Again, I apologize for any mental deficiencies that being distracted by having all the scoop on my face may be causing. But thanks so much for putting up with them. And thanks so much for listening all the way to the end of this episode. I look forward to joining you next week with a new one. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.